Well, listen, this morning we are continuing our journey uh, through a series that we started last week called The Blessed Life. This is a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Over the next nine months or so, we'll be in and out of a few series that we're walking through uh, the various sections of this sermon. And, uh, and last week, what we said was, was simply this, is that the Sermon on the Mount is really the declaration of kingdom life for those who in Jesus are now kingdom citizens. Jesus is showing us in this sermon, this is what it looks like when I'm your king. This is what it looks like when you have life found in me. And it's a life that's different from the life of those in the world. And he's, he's unpacking this idea that when I am your king, there is gonna be a transformation in your life and you will be altogether different than the kingdom from the kingdom of this broken world. And one of the things I think it's important that I reiterate that I really focused on last week is this idea, is that when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you have a conclusion that you come to, and that conclusion is not, I got this. Like when you read the Sermon on the Mount, no one ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying, I'm nailing it. The Sermon on the Mount is a life that Jesus is calling to that no one nails other than Jesus. And so you don't end it by saying, I can do it. We talked about last week, you've got better chance of success jumping out of an airplane without a parachute than trying to live the Sermon on the Mount in and of your own strength. And so the point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus showing us this kingdom life, driving us, listen to this, to a place of desperation and utter dependence upon him to do for us what we cannot do on our own so that in him, he does through us what we cannot do on our own. The point is, Jesus is the only way that we can live this life. Uh, there's a quote I read this week by uh, a great Bible teacher and, and scholar, D.A. Carson, that really summarizes what I was trying to communicate last week. I could have just read his quote and not even preached, um, and that would have been sufficient. But here's what D.A. Carson says about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the Sermon on the Mount provides us with a crushing blow to self-righteousness and follows it up with an invitation to petition God for favor, without which there can be no admittance to the kingdom. At the same time, it sketches in the quality of life of those who do enter, those who petition God, ask for forgiveness, and who by God's grace discover not only forgiveness, listen to this, but a growing personal conformity to kingdom norms. In other words, this sermon leaves us desperate for Jesus. And so when we call on his name, ask for forgiveness, submit to his kingship, our life begins to be transformed from the inside out so that the norms of the kingdom that he's talking about becomes realities in our life. We're enabled then to live the Christian life. And so this morning, we're gonna really dive into these this first really section of Jesus' sermon, this is where we're gonna be the next several weeks in this Blessed Life series. We're gonna talk about the Beatitudes and covering verses three through um, verse around number 11 or 12 uh, today. And so what we're gonna do though is kind of see it again holistically, like I did last week with the Sermon on the Mount at the 30,000 foot view through chapters five and seven, we're gonna kind of do the same thing. And then next week we'll start kind of going verse by verse and unpacking more in detail the individual parts of this section of scripture, but I think it's important that we get the, the bigger picture. Now, I made a challenge to uh, our church on a video this week. Did anybody see the video? I sent a challenge. Number one was, I'm challenging you to read the Sermon on the Mount 
um, over and over and over again as you, we go through the series. So maybe one, two, three times during the week, make that your Bible reading, just immerse yourself into it, try to get through it. Um, every two days, maybe you read the entire Sermon on the Mount. Then I challenge you to memorize with me verses one through 16 of chapter five. Anybody see that challenge? Raise your hand if you saw that challenge. I can't see your face through your mask. Some of you are scared. How many of you are gonna take the challenge and you've already started the process? Okay, here's what I need. Everybody with their hands raised. Y'all would join me on stage. Um, I'm, I'm joking, all right? I'm not gonna do that to you, but here's what I, I will do. I, I will uh, show you, I've been working on this. So, you ready? Seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain. And when he had set, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward will be great in heaven. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and place it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What, what an amazing section of scripture. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, this is the kingdom life. This really captures for us what Jesus wants us to walk in each and every day. When we think about these words that I just quoted to you, think about what would happen in your life and in culture if through the power of the Holy Spirit, this began to be our disposition in life the difference that our lives would make for the kingdom of God in the kingdom of this world. And this is what we're gonna talk about this morning. I wanna take verses three through 11 and give you three ideas, three truths that we glean about this uncommon blessing from this uncommon kingdom that we discover in these verses. So I'm gonna give you this, write this down if you're taking notes. Number one, I want you to see this. See that true happiness is a byproduct of being in right, in right relationship with Jesus. True happiness is the byproduct of being in a right relationship with Jesus. So check this out. Happiness is something we want. And here's what you're gonna discover, and we're gonna talk about this this morning. That happiness is never obtained when you pursue happiness. Happiness is obtained when you pursue Jesus because... When you get Jesus, you have everything you need and in him you find the happiness that you're looking for. 
So the happiness that we're looking for is found in a relationship with Jesus. And I think it's interesting that Jesus opens up this sermon with nine times talking about the blessing that comes from him. This, this word blessed is used. In fact, let me just kind of drive home for you why this section is so significant. Do you realize that the Sermon on the Mount is the first recorded sermon in the New Testament that Jesus gives? So it's the very first detailed recorded sermon that Jesus preaches. Now, now think about this. So it's important. It's the first one. And the very beginning, the opening of the first sermon recorded in, in, the, in the scriptures that Jesus preached begins with nine times talking about the blessings of the kingdom. That Jesus wants us to understand that he is coming to offer us something that we cannot find in this world, but everyone is looking for it. He uses nine times this, this, this word blessed. It's the Greek word makarios. It, it means a state of happiness. It means a, a state of blessing. Or, or maybe some will translate it as, it's the life of God's favor when it's resting upon you. This is the idea, is the Hebrew version of this is often used in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, you see this. It's the, um, it's the Hebrew word ashray. And it it literally could be translated, oh, the bliss, or oh, the pleasures, oh, the happinesses, oh, the joy. This is the idea here that's being talked about. So Jesus is talking about a happiness that's different from the happiness that the world has to offer. Listen to what Dallas Willard says about this. He says this, he says, this word refers to the highest type of well-being possible for a human being. So this is not just a junk drawer word, like we just kind of throw around with no significance. This is a word, according to Dallas Willard, that's describing the greatest state of well-being that you and I could ever experience as mankind. That's a powerful word. And this is what Jesus chooses to use to describe the life that's found in him. Another way of saying, Jesus is saying, there is a life that is fully satisfied in the kingdom. And this is ultimately what we're all looking for. Jesus is describing for us a happiness that many of us exhaust our lives pursuing but never obtaining. Like this is the story of humanity. Everyone is looking for what Jesus is describing. We want a sense of wholeness and satisfaction of internal contentment in the soul. The problem is humanity has exchanged what Jesus is describing that's found in him and we've exchanged it for a cheap version of it that can never deliver to us what we hope it would. And and the problem is, is that many of us, we are perpetually pursuing this, this cheaper version of happiness that's dependent upon circumstances and experiences and feelings. It's a fleeting happiness that gives certain feelings momentarily, and then it fades away. And then when it fades away, it leaves us longing for something else and something more. And oftentimes, eyes right here for a second, if we're honest and we just self-evaluate our life, what we discover is, is that it leaves us even with a greater longing and disappointment because we thought we grabbed what it would be that would give us what we want, and then it's gone, and now there is this void in our life that was even greater than before. This is why there's so many people who are pursuing wealth and no matter how much money they make and what kind of life they begin to live, they never find that they're satisfied. There's always more money to make, more things to buy, more extravagant life to be lived. And there's this pursuit of hoping that maybe wealth and finances and possessions might fill me, 
and give me this happiness. This, that's why for so many people are moving from relationship to relationship to relationship. And it's like this, this, this madness of just repeat. It's like relationships are here and they're gone and there's somebody new. And if you know people like this, here's what's happening is that in this relationship, I get this euphoric feeling from this person that makes me feel happy, feel a certain way. But as soon as there's conflict in the relationship and things don't go like I want it to, all of a sudden the euphoria leaves, the feeling leaves. I don't feel happy anymore. And so what I need to do is find someone else who can make me feel that way again. And then there's this perpetual cycle of one relationship after another. This is why so many of us are pursuing happiness and trying to be successful and accomplished because we're trying to find self-value and worth. Ultimately, we're looking for happiness that maybe if I can become this, maybe if I can achieve this, maybe if I can get this degree and get that job, if I can get that title, if I can climb the ladder, if I can have this many people under me and me be in leadership, maybe my life will have value and worth. And listen, you, you, listen we, none of us in this room can deny that, right? Like this is the human existence. And, and be honest with you, all of us in this room have found this in our life to be true. This is why for many of us, what we're wanting is not money or maybe relationships. We're looking for approval. We just want someone to give validation to our life, to, to tell us that we're valuable and that we're loved. And so what do we do? We base all of our decisions in life based upon what approval I'm gonna receive by, by doing this thing or going this place or dating this person or achieving this thing. We want approval. And listen, let me just tell you something. There is not enough approval that humanity can give you that will satisfy the longing of your heart. It's only gonna leave you wanting more. And this is the story of humanity. I mean, I, I think this really describes it. I was thinking about this passage and what Jesus is describing. I was reminded of, my, one of my favorite movies uh, is The Greatest Showman. Anybody Greatest Showman fans? Yeah, you guys can raise your hand. Like, it's a musical. Okay, get over it. That's one of the greatest, top five for me, all right? Tombstone is in the list, so I don't get my man card pulled, all right? So, but Greatest Showman is in there. Um, and I love, I love this. I mean, I'll be honest with you. This is authentic biblical community moment for me. Um, it's like in my truck, my playlist, like, like Greatest Showman's in it, not just when my kids are in the vehicle. Like I'm, I'm, I'm loving the soundtrack. I love the movie. I have that and then, then Frozen right after that, the Frozen soundtrack. Um, and if you're mad at me about that, just let it go, let it go. Um, <laughs> that was bad. Uh, I love this movie and, and I'll forget the first time I watched the movie, it hit me. What they're describing in this movie in the life of P.T. Barnum, or at least this interpretation of his life is really the longing of the human heart. See, the story is about a man who grows up in poverty, who's had bad experiences, who's looked up at the upper class and, and so desires to be where they are and so despises where he is that he's got all of this creative imagination and he wants to dream and create something, but the purpose of creating and dreaming and doing everything is so that he can climb the ladder to go to those parties, to sit with those people, to obtain their approval and to be a part of the social group only to get to that place and experience all those successes and realize that none of it satisfies him, and that in fact, he's about to lose the things that are most important to him, pursuing all of this. 
mean, that's really the story of humanity. In fact, they, I love this movie because it really captures in the music the essence of what's being told in the story. And one of the songs that I really believe, I know that, that, that this is not a Christian song, but I believe that when there are truths that are communicated, even in secular music, there's something that God wants to teach us. And one of the songs in the movie that summarizes really the big picture of what's being displayed is in a song called Never Enough. Well, here's the lyrics. Listen to this. The, the lyrics of this song, Never Enough, says this. I'm trying to hold my breath. Let it stay this way. I can't live, I can't let this moment end. You set off a dream in me getting louder now. Can you hear it echoing? Take my hand, will you share this with me? Because darling, without you. Now listen to the lyrics, listen to this phrase. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough, never be enough for me. And this song captures the essence of the human condition, of what we're pursuing in life. We are so many people, regardless of how much money we make, we are wanting more, regardless of what relationship in. We think there's another one. Regardless of how much success we obtain, there's something more I need to do. Regardless of who approves of us, there's always somebody else that I want their affirmation. It's never enough, never enough, never enough for any of us. And this is the harsh reality. Isn't this what... Solomon describes for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, the book of Ecclesiastes describes Solomon evaluating his life and here's the summary of what he says. He says, man, I had it all. I had sex, I had relationships, I had pleasure, I had prosperity, I built things, I had success, I had the world at my fingertips and in the end, it was meaningless. He says, all of those things that I was pursuing and I gained all of them and I discovered that what I was pursuing in those things really led me to simply chasing the wind. Running after something that could never be obtained. I mean, this is how many of us live our life. But listen to this. So Jesus comes on the scene and in the very first sermon recorded in the New Testament, Jesus is saying, I know what you're looking for. I know what you're longing for. I know what's the void that's in your soul. And I'm here to tell you what you're looking for is found in me. You're looking for contentment in your soul. You're looking to have approval. And guess what? In me, you'll have all the approval you'll ever need in this lifetime. You'll be fully satisfied when you understand that what you're looking for is found in me. It's in this kingdom life. So Jesus' invitation is an invitation into a relationship with him. And in that relationship, we discover the deepest blessing, the truest joy, and the most lasting uh, happiness that we could ever experience in life. A happiness that's not tied to this world, but is a lasting happiness that is rooted in Christ and the life he produces in us. This is what we're looking for. Think about this. This is what Jesus came to, came to do. John chapter 10, verse 10, listen to this. He says this, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. 
You see, I think for somewhere along the way that we think, man, I gotta live life on my own and if things get tough, I'm gonna turn to Jesus because he's gonna fix the problem. Never realizing that what you're pursuing outside of Jesus is a lesser version of what you can find in him and that Jesus is not meant in your life to be the great fix it to your disrupted life because pleasure is gone. Rather, he is the one in which you should be finding pleasure in. He's like the thief comes to rob from you what God created for you, but I came to give you what God has for you, which is not just life, it is an abundant life. It is a blessed life that's found in me. And until we begin to see Jesus through that lens and we hold the Jesus up to the world, many of us, we view Jesus as the great taker of joy because there are restrictions. There's a different life he's calling me to live, not realizing it is in that life where we find what we're looking for. I love what Derwin Gray former NFL player, now a pastor and preacher, he says this, he says, according to Jesus, this is his summary of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, according to Jesus, the blessed or happy are those whose lives are supernaturally interwoven into Jesus's life and who are participating in his kingdom by his Holy Spirit. That's where happiness is found. Now, let me be clear on something. When we talk about the uncommon blessing that's found in Jesus, this happy life that we're talking about, Jesus is very clear that he's not talking about a life of ease and comfort. In fact, when you get to the end of the Beatitudes, the last actually has two sections for just one of the Beatitudes, which is the persecution part. Jesus is very upfront. Listen, blessed are those who are persecuted. Why? Because in me, you will be persecuted. He's not promising you a life of ease and comfort and everything as well. Like you get Jesus and now the water is smooth and the roads are, are wide and, and there's not, they're not rough and man, troubles aren't gonna come your way. No, 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 no. The life in Jesus is a life that's gonna lead you at times into being rejected by the world. But here's what Jesus is saying. In the midst of that, there is going to be a blessing in you that you experience from me that can cannot be touched by the circumstances of this world. How many of you want that? I mean, that's what we should be longing for. Not a life of ease and comfort, but rather a life that says, regardless of what happens to me, I have everything I need, and the thing that makes me most content and satisfied cannot be taken from me. And that is powerful. So I want you to think about this for a moment. This blessed life, and we're gonna get into the Beatitudes and begin to walk through kind of holistically these eight attributes, these eight Beatitudes. I wanna make sure we understand something. The, the, the fundamental problem that was caused in the Garden of Eden when humanity sinned against God was this. Two, two major dilemmas, two major problems. Number one, we were created to have a relationship with God and that relationship with God because of sin was broken. So our disposition before the Lord, before our creator, of, of, of resting in him as our provider for everything, of finding life in him, of, of not having brokenness because everything was as it should be, of understanding the humility that we walked in because of who he was in our life and we joyfully hum humbled ourselves before him, which means that we were clothed in his righteousness. But when sin entered the world, that righteousness, that perfection was taken from us. And now the relationship with God that we lived in, that we were created for has now been broken. Now our disposition toward God is rebellious and, and we don't wanna submit to him and we get self-prideful and we're full of ourselves, and we think we can do it our own way, right? Is that human, humanity or what? 
The second issue is relationships with others were broken. And where there was once peace and shalom between Adam and Eve and humanity, now there is division and brokenness and chaos and all kinds of things that happen in human relationships. Both are byproduct of the fall. And what we're going to see is we talk about the kingdom life that under Jesus' rule and reign, both of those dilemmas are resolved. We now understand in him the posture that we live in before God and the posture that we live in before others. Here's number two. Write this down if you're taking notes. Listen to this. So I'm going I'm I'm to read number one, and then I'm going to give you number two. So true happiness is a byproduct of being in a relationship with Jesus. Now, being in a relationship with Jesus transforms our posture before God and others. You see that? So we, we, the, the happiness we're longing for is found in a relationship with Jesus. And that relationship with Jesus transforms uh, us so that now the posture we have before God and others reflects that of one who's in a relationship with Jesus. Now here's, it's important you, you see this. So when you jump into the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are simply this. So you say, what is a Beatitude? The Beatitude is just a, a, a English form of a Latin word. This is gonna get confusing. Of the Greek word. That's found here in the scriptures. So the beatitude simply means the same thing as blessed or happy or favor or joy or all these things that we've been using to describe. And so what Jesus does with the beatitudes is that these beatitudes are the eight attributes of kingdom life. This is what kingdom people look like. And these eight attributes are broken down into two groups of four. The first four Beatitudes or attributes of citizenship in the kingdom relate to how our posture looks before God. The second four is what our posture is before others. And the vertical then impacts the horizontal and they build on one another. Here's what I mean. Look what he says here in verse number three. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, notice what's happening here. He is describing when we come to salvation in Christ, there's a transformation that happens in our heart that changes our posture before God. We come back to submission to him and say, what does that look like? We are poor in spirit, which simply means we know that we're spiritually bankrupt. We come before God with empty pockets and empty hands. I have nothing to offer. I have everything to receive. I have nothing. Therefore, I am poor in spirit, which then leads me to mourn. Now I mourn over the brokenness because my poverty is a byproduct of a sinful heart. And so now before the Lord, I'm not prideful and arrogant in my self-righteousness. I recognize I have nothing, which means I'm exposed. And now I mourn over the condition of my soul in this confession of who I am, that I have nothing and I am nothing. And then it moves us into what? A meekness, a humility. Now it's no longer about my will, my way, my pride, my rights. It is now I, I become meek and lowly and submissive, which leads me then to a hunger for God's righteousness to be a reality in my life. Next week, we're gonna unpack all four of those in detail and talk practically of what this looks like. But understand what's happening is, is that Jesus is saying in the kingdom life, when you've been transformed by Jesus, there's a different posture that you live with before the Lord. There's a different posture that you see him, him differently. You see yourself differently. 
It puts things in perspective, which leads to the second four, which then move us from the vertical relationship with God and our disposition toward him to horizontally the relationship we have with others. Look what he says in verse seven. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he says, we are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. We are persecuted, but we do so with joy. And these all really have to do with our posture before the world. Now notice how they're built upon one another. Listen to this. When I'm poor in spirit, I realize I'm spiritually bankrupt. What does that do? That causes me to grieve over the condition of my heart, which then puts me in a lowly, meek position before the Lord, which now I begin to hunger and thirst for his righteousness. And then by his mercy, he gives me his righteousness. And because I've got his righteousness by his mercy, guess what happens? In response to his mercy, I begin to give mercy away. And because in Jesus I have everything I need, I don't need false motives. I can now be pure in heart. I don't have to have hidden agendas with the world because if Jesus is my satisfaction and he is my righteousness, then what in the world would I be doing deceiving the world to give me? Because I have everything in Christ. And then when I see brokenness in the world because in Jesus and his mercy and his provision that I have been given reconciliation with God. I was an enemy of God and now I have peace with God. Now I become a peacemaker in the world. And when I look like that, there's gonna be a price to pay because the world hates Jesus and persecution is coming. But because I'm in him and he is everything to me, I can be persecuted with joy. That's the kingdom of life. That's radically different than the world we live in today, right? Like this is what our posture should be before God, our posture before the world. Now think about what this does. Now just think about how we see the gospel. All of this is produced by Jesus's work in us. And, and notice what the, 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 the gospel does. As we begin to live this way, it aligns us with the greatest commandments. Remember the greatest commandments? Jesus was asked by a lawyer, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Of everything that God has for us, what's number one? Here's Jesus' answer, Matthew 22, verse 37. And he said, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And listen to this. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. So what we see in the Beatitudes that these attributes of kingdom citizens enable us to love God with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourself. So that in Christ, the law and the prophets are being fulfilled in us through his power and might and his righteousness becoming evident in us. You see, this it's pivotal we understand the posture that Jesus wants to create in us as kingdom citizens. That we look radically different from the world because we look to God differently and we look to others differently and everything that we see in regards to our relationship with God and relationship with other is dependent upon what Christ has done for us and how he's transformed us. Amen? which leads us to number three. And all these build on one another. So I'm gonna read you the first statement. True happiness is a byproduct of being in relationship with Jesus. Being in a relationship with Jesus transforms our posture before God and others. This transformed life in Jesus creates in us a radical new way of living that differentiates us 
from the kingdom of this world. I want to read that again. This transformed life in Jesus creates in us a radical new way of living that differentiates us from the kingdom of this world. It's important that we understand what's happening here. It's important that we understand what the Beatitudes are and what the Beatitudes aren't. How, how many of you have ever heard people talking about the Sermon on the Mount and have said the Sermon on the Mount is a way that someone is saved? That's how you actually get favor from God and become a Christian. Anybody ever heard that before? And I heard this, like the Ten Commandments. How, how can we go to heaven when we die? Do the Ten Commandments. Good luck with that. You get through the first three and you're like, I need somebody's help, right? The, the Sermon on the Mount is the same way. Some people look at it as if it's the way in which we're made right with God. The Beatitudes are treated like this as well. So let me help you understand what the Beatitudes are and what they're not. First of all, the Beatitudes are not how someone is saved. The Beatitudes are not how someone is saved. But the second is this, because that would be works-based righteousness, the second is this, the Beatitudes are not what we do to solicit God's blessing. Now hear me say this, the Beatitudes are not what we do to solicit God's blessing. That would be manipulation and false motive, right? You see, here's the thing you need to know. The blessing that we are being described here by Jesus in this passage, these are not things that God rewards us with because we've done so many things. Listen, the blessing that Jesus is describing is, where, is, is what we experience as we walk as kingdom citizens. So I don't walk in the Beatitudes because then I do this, God's gonna give me a blessing. No, no, no. In doing them, I enter into the blessed life that's found in Jesus. Does that make sense? Let me summarize it like this. The Beatitudes are not what we do in order to be saved, but they are the byproduct of salvation. They are not the means to salvation or blessing, they are the evidence of salvation. Drastically different. So what are the Beatitudes? I've said it a number of times. Beatitudes are attributes that describe what kingdom people look like. It's describing what kingdom people look like. So metaphorically speaking, let me paint the picture like this. The, the attributes being described, the Beatitudes are the uniform that we are clothed in by Jesus that identifies us as being on Team Jesus. It's the, it's the uniform that Jesus clothes us in that allows the world to know we're on Team Jesus. This is what the attributes are. This is what the Beatitudes are. That Jesus is wanting to introduce to us a lifestyle that allows the world to know that we belong to him. And listen, this life is going to make us look radically different from everybody else in society. Let me show you how. If you just look at the Beatitudes and compare them to the way the world thinks, check this out right here. This is the kingdom of this world, I think they're gonna bring it up, the kingdom of this world celebrates arrogance and pride, self-righteousness. The kingdom of heaven celebrates humility and lowliness. The kingdom of this world, man, we all want to pursue a carefree life. Man, I want a life of luxury. I want the American dream. I want the perfect house and the green lawn and the picket fence and the dog in the backyard that doesn't poop on the grass and it doesn't bark at night, right? Is that not part of the American dream? And according to the statistics, I want two and a half kids. I don't know where the half kid comes from, but we want the carefree life, broken world kingdom of heaven celebrates brokenness. A disposition of soul that is desperate for God. 
and our broken kingdom, we celebrate the strong and the dominant. Those who are powerful. Kingdom says, no, 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 it's, it's meekness and gentleness. The kingdom of this world says, it's about the pursuit of personal pleasure. Do what feels good to you. Does that not summarize our culture right now? Be who you wanna be. Do what feels good to you. Do what's right, according to scriptures, in your own eyes. And whatever it is that makes you happy, makes you feel good, pour yourself into it. And don't let anyone get in your way. Kingdom of heaven says, no, no, no. And we hunger for holiness. Life as God has designed it. And then horizontally before others, this is the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world moves into this sense of vengeance or retaliation. It loves to retaliate. You do this to me, I'm gonna do this to you. You say that, I'm coming back. You challenge me, I'm challenging you. It's the eye for the eye. And if you don't know what that's played out in, in the passive aggressive way, just follow social media threads. Bickering back and forth. You said this, I say this, I'm gonna come back with this and I got you on this one and I'm gonna get you on this one. And it gets more and more and more personal. Listen, that's the way the world operates. It's all about retaliation and response. Kingdom of heaven extends mercy. Kingdom of this world, it's confrontational and divisive. By the way, all you have to do is look at social media or watch any news outlet. Does this describe our culture right now? This is the broken world. Kingdom of heaven, it's reconciliation. We pursue reconciliation. We're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to reconcile relationships kingdom of this world, it's all about acceptance and approval. How many likes did I get? How many people follow me? How many retweets? All about approval. All about acceptance. Kingdom of heaven? No, 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 no. We, we, we're joyful in being persecuted. We walk in an understanding that when we walk with Jesus, we're going to be rejected by the world, but we do so joyfully because in Jesus we have everything that we have. Do you see the difference I mean, this is the difference between the kingdom of this world and what Jesus is describing, this life that's found in him. This transformed life creates a radical new way of living that differentiates us from the world. The question we need to be asking is, do we look different? Is there a difference? If this is the life that Jesus is describing, are we living in this? Just think about these attributes for a moment. Jesus wants to produce in us as his people, a different way of living that looks different from the world, that causes us to stand out. These are pieces of the uniform that Jesus is clothing us in so that we can be identified as his in a broken culture, that we stand out. A couple of weeks ago, we were going to a travel basketball game with my kids and they play at the same tournament. And uh, so they both wore their uniform to the game because the game's kind of run tight. You don't have a chance to go and change. So they wore their uniform, had their you know, jersey, shorts, slides, shooter shirt. We're going. We stopped at a restaurant to eat. And we stopped at a restaurant that wasn't a nice, fancy restaurant, but it was a restaurant where nobody else was wearing uniforms for a basketball game. Like everybody's dressing kind of like I'm dressed now. And so they walk in. They immediately feel out of place because they stand out. No one is dressed in uniforms. And so it, it, it was obvious that if you, scan, if you just kind of scanned the room, 
they were different from everyone else. In fact, people would come to us and ask us the question, did you, did you guys win? And we're like, no, we're going to the game. Um, okay, good luck. Like, did, they didn't, we didn't even tell them that we were going to a basketball game. But because of the uniforms the kids were wearing, the assumption was, without saying it, we know there's something different about you, that either you've been somewhere we've not been or you're going somewhere we're not going. And here's the distinction. You see, we went to that restaurant that day and my kids were dressed not for where they were, but they were dressed for where they were heading. And because of that, they stood out. There was something different about them. Pastor Brian Loritz says this. He says, the Beatitudes represent a peculiar clothing that fits where we are headed. Listen to this. And causes us to stand out where we are. This is the kingdom life. This is what Jesus has called us to. A life that looks radically different. A life where we're not removed from the world, but rather we're in the world. And while we're in the world, we look distinctly different from the world. Therefore, we become difference makers in this broken culture, advancing the kingdom of God. Listen to me. This is what Jesus is inviting us to. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And by the way, at the end of Jesus's earthly ministry, this is what Jesus pleads with the Father to give us. Let me show you what I mean. John chapter 17, verse 15. Jesus is about to be betrayed and arrested. And we have what we call the high priestly prayers where Jesus petitions God on your behalf and my behalf. Listen to what Jesus prays. I do not ask that you take them, this is disciples, this is you and me, out of the world, this broken world, but you keep them from the evil one. So in other words, Jesus is saying, the goal is not to create a subculture that isolates you get a compound somewhere and everyone who thinks like you, looks like you, talks like you, acts like you, follows Jesus like you, you just get together and you abstain from being around everyone else. No, 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 Jesus says, no, 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 that's not my prayer. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. In fact, I want you to leave them in the world, but while they're there, I want you to protect them from becoming like the world. This is what Jesus is praying. Look at verse 16. They, talking about you and me, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then he says this, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. He says, how, how are they gonna walk in this new kingdom life in the midst of a broken world? It is through walking in the truth that's found in God. And by the way, CNN is not truth. Fox News is not truth. Whatever social media you read to get information about how the world is operating, it's not truth. What is truth is what's found right here. It is God's truth revealed in Christ, now being created in us. And this truth is the only way we're gonna survive in a broken culture and remain distinct. And that's the truth. Check this out. Listen to this. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, the kingdom, broken kingdom, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus came on a mission. The king broke into the broken kingdom in order to usher in a new authority, a new rule, a new reign, establishing his kingship on earth. 
Jesus came for that purpose. Just as the Father sent Jesus to usher in the kingdom, now Jesus is sending us on an extension of the rescue mission, which is the expansion of the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel so that as men and women far from God see our lives, hear our message, they too can declare that King Jesus is their Lord and then they enter into the rule and reign of King Jesus and they join the mission and they begin to advance it. You see how this thing works? We have been called to stand out in this world as kingdom citizens so that we can pursue and advance the kingdom agenda, which is, the glory of Jesus and the nations coming to know him as king so that when he returns, they might live forever as citizens of the life he is recreating for humanity. And when I look at what's happening in the world, let me be honest just for a moment as a pastor, I am so discouraged right now. This whole week, I've just been sick to my stomach, just, just discouraged and sad I'm just seeing chaos all around, hatred spewing everywhere, unreasonable behavior, acts of violence, destruction, and just, just it's like I, I'm, as a father and as a husband, as a, as a follower, as a pastor trying to navigate through these waters, I'm just, I feel what some of you are feeling. I feel sad, I feel discouraged, I feel confused, I feel helpless. But I'll tell you, there's, there's something I'm thankful for. And I'm gonna ask you to lean in just for a second. Coronavirus and all of this unrest, there's two things, there's one thing that I find that I'm thankful for. And that is, I think that the church of Jesus Christ is being siphoned and who we are is being revealed. I think the, the Lord is using this to reveal the true character of who we are as a church. Not just us, but the church all over. You see, kingdom attributes are easy when life is easy. But when the nation begins to burn down, who we really are gets revealed. I heard a coach say this a couple of months ago and it just wrecked me in a number of areas, but think about this. Some of you have heard the statement coaches to say all the time, hey, you gotta rise to the occasion. Fourth quarter, rise to the occasion. Here's what this coach said. No one ever rises to the occasion. They only sink to the level of their preparation. In other words, when the battle gets real, to who, real who you are will be revealed. And what I'm seeing right now is the battle is getting real and it's getting more intense. What I'm seeing right now is that the true church, we're showing our colors. And for most of us, our colors are either blue or red. And I believe that within this, God is refining us. We, listen, have been called and sent by God to enter into the broken fray of this world. To enter into the mess, to enter into the destruction. A nation burning down. Christians far too often are trying to polarize ourselves with certain ideologies rather than saying, this is what we've been called for. 
This is why he left us here. This is why he's placed us where we are for such a time as this, so that the attributes of King Jesus, so that the kingdom life might surface in us and we might stand and look different from the world so that we, by the power of Jesus, might give mercy, might have pure motives, might be peacemakers in the world. And yes, it's gonna cost us, but what would the world see if in the midst of suffering, they saw joy, even when everything is stripped away, we go, there's something in you that I don't have. What is it? And it's Jesus. You imagine this. Imagine there's a house burning down. I watched a house burn down as a kid, neighbor's house. It was terrible. Imagine there's a house burning down. People need to be rescued. Fire needs to be put out. So you call first responders and the fire department shows up. When they show up, they don't have any of their gear on. No hoses. Crowds are standing there talking about the fire, how the fire must have started, how the fire should be put out what people should be doing and running in there and getting people. The crowd's just out there talking, waiting for the fire. So the fire department shows up and when they show up, they look no different than everyone else. And they're just standing around going, yeah, I know it. I don't know what started the fire. I wonder if it was this. I think it might've been this. Here's some things that people should be doing. And everyone would look at that moment at the fire department and say, you're the ones that's supposed to put the fire out. Stop talking about why the fire's burning and what your philosophy is about putting it out and actually get into the fire so that you might do what you've been called to do. And I think that describes perfectly the church right now. We're just standing around, talking about the fire. This world's a mess, this chaos is going on. Man, I hate masks, I hate coronavirus. I wish this would all go away. I think it's this person's fault. I think it's this person's fault. You know what, I got a great idea. This might be offensive, but I'm gonna tweet it anyway, or I'm gonna post it anyway. And we're blasting, and what we're doing as the people that God has sent into the fire to rescue, we're standing around, not clothed in Christ, joining in in the same nonsense while the house is burning. And we must rise up church to step into the flames to look like Jesus in the midst of chaos and to bring peace and mercy and grace and love to look like Jesus so that he might be known I'm going to ask you to bow your heads if you would and I'm just going to ask you simply just to reflect on something number one I want you to ask yourself the question, is Jesus my king? Is Jesus my king? If you are uncertain of that, if you don't know if you've ever been transformed by Jesus, you can simply confess your allegiance to him, whether you're online or in this room, by simply confessing you're a sinner, repenting and submitting to the kingship of Jesus in your life, believing that he died for you, he resurrected, and he wants to give you life. Others of you in this room or online, you know Jesus is king. So here's your simple question that you need to ask. Here's question number two. If Jesus is your king, are there areas of your life that does not reflect his kingdom? And if you answer that with yes, identify it, confess it, repent of it. And here's for both groups. Jesus is not your king. He can become king, your king today. If he is your king and you've walked in rebellion to his kingdom, Here's the great news, Jesus paid it all. There's no sin too great. All you need to do is confess, repent, 
and trust in his sufficiency for your forgiveness.